an iPhone, okay? It's amazing what this thing can track, right? So it not only tracks how many steps you take during the day, uh, it can track uh, a variety of things. In fact, uh, Bud was showing me all of his gadgets on his watch, uh, everything from health concerns and vitals and all that type of thing. But there's one thing, I don't know if you get this to pop up once a week or not. For me, it's every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. And it tells me how much time I've been using the phone, how many hours I have been on the phone in the last week. Isn't that amazing? So you can look at that number and you go, that can't possibly be right. It's way too high. But if you look at it at the end of the day, you'll go, I've spent two hours today on the phone, either texting or surfing the web or whatever it may be. My goodness gracious. So there are things we are unaware of that if we can get a reading on it, we might be shocked. So have you ever stopped to think about whether your phone, if it had an app to keep record of how many times a day you judge someone else, what would your record be at the end of the day? Okay, so we all go through the day, we see all kinds of other people, right? And we make a judgment about them, usually in our mind. What if this phone was recording that? And what if at the end of the day it says, you judged 50 people today without ever knowing their name or knowing anything about them, right? So if we put a stopwatch to our thoughts, we might be surprised as to how often we size someone up make a judgment about them without even knowing their name or something about them. And that can turn real toxic. It can make a very toxic environment at work or at church or in the community or among various ethnic groups uh, that we cross paths with. So we might find ourselves saying things like, well, those people, those kind of people. And many times when we do that, we don't realize that we are often contributing to a problem that sometimes gets out of control. So through the history of the church and through the history of our country or perhaps through the history of our own family, we might find that these type of thoughts get out of control. And I kind of think that over the last couple of decades, the church as we know it, I'm not talking about Shade Tree Church, I'm talking about the church worldwide, has gotten out of control with the way they judge other people who are not like them. So a lot has really changed since I gave my life to the Lord back in 1975. I was a senior in high school and I played a lot of basketball with a couple of buddies and they went to a church, ironically enough, that was only two doors up from where I grew up. Now, I live on a side street on North Hill in Akron, and how they built a church in the middle of a side street, I will never know, but it did. And it's a small little church, but it was one of those type of churches where people could walk to, and I think that's this type of church, at least at one time, a lot of people probably walked to this church and and they, and they worshiped here. 
So what did they find when they, get, they got here? Well, what I found in this little church called Forest Hill Community Church was a group of people that was quite accepting. You know how turbulent the late 60s and early 70s were, right? It was kind of a turbulent time in the history of our nation. And now it's almost 50 years ago, and many of those people that went to this little church uh, have passed on. Maybe they moved to different parts of the country, or we have simply lost touch. But I still remember in the back of my mind, even though that church was filled with all kinds of quirky people, not one time did I ever feel a sense of rejection or judgment from them. What I did not realize at the time was I was experiencing something very unique. And it was during the 70s when there was kind of a resurgence, or we might call the word revival, that was taking place in America. And it seems as though something had happened where people were coming together and they weren't divided by politics. There was no pressure that would later come along to conform to a certain set of values. And if you did not hold to those, somehow you were a heathen or a pagan of some sort. In other words, there was no red or blue, and there was no I'm superior to you, at least in my experience. It prob probably was true in churches, but at least in my experience, I got just this much of a taste of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Now, this little church never, ever, ever used the term the kingdom of God. They were still kind of a throwback to when we all get to heaven and when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there type of thing. But they, in their experience, helped me, at least, understand that the kingdom of God is much like that church for everyone that uh, Corey read the book earlier. And so what we find is that when the church is dialed in and gets back to its roots, we find that he created a people and a community to bring his enduring light, truth, goodness, and peace into the world and to allow it to be shared with other people who are very much unlike us. Well, over the last few decades, I think I've seen the demise of this beautiful entity and the beauty of the kingdom of God has somehow lost its power and I think what we find is that within the church, there has arisen people who pursue power and profit. And to do that, you always need a scapegoat. And so different people are often singled out to be scapegoated. And we, sort of like the frog in the water where it heats up, we haven't noticed. And we maybe find ourselves today, here in 2021, with this reality that many people, especially younger people, have said, church is not for me because they have been hurt by the church. And I want to say, and I confess, that the church regularly breaks our heart, disappoints us, and sometimes even damages us. And it takes a while to heal from that and to trust other people again. You see, church life is not the center of community anymore. It's almost a commodity. So people find their community in other places. 
and it might be in a bowling league or a golf league or it might be some other venue that they find their community. But when they come to church to kind of, I guess, have their soul fed with some type of spiritual food, one of the things that they find is that they have separated from the community. A church is supposed to be a community of people that love each other and serve each other and help each other as necessary. But the contemporary church is one that is an unhealthy institution many times. It's deeply flawed. And one of the things that we find is what we find in this passage of scripture that I read for us a moment ago out of John chapter 8. And that is the sin of being judgmental. So in this first message, in this new series called Goodness Gracious, I want to talk a little bit about dropping the stones. And you notice that all these individuals that uh, came to set Jesus up and use a woman in the process had stones in their hand, and they wanted to uh, condemn her and execute her. And so the American church sometimes does not hold physical stones in their hand, but sometimes they use symbolic stones in their hands. And there's a lot of bickering and division. There's a lot of celebrity worship. And there's a whole lot of self-centeredness that often happens in the church community. So what we want to do over the next eh, seven or eight weeks is we want to talk about how can we be a group of people that are good and gracious to other people. And I think this passage that we're starting with today helps us to understand that being good is better than being great. Being gracious is better than being grandiose. The church can still be a part of the good news for society. And we need to recalibrate. And so to do so, I want to take these two words, goodness and graciousness, and I just want to tease them out over the next few weeks so that we can see that the church really is a community more than a commodity. Let's face it, most small churches like ours if the church is only a commodity to be consumed, we don't stand a chance because there's a lot of churches that do things a whole lot better than what we do. However, if the church is a community and if it's people just like you and me that can get to know each other and love each other and serve each other and, and celebrate with each other, um, oh, I think it'll scratch an itch that many people have, but they can't find it sometimes in the places that they go to on Facebook or other social media. So that's our goal. So if we're to be the community of Christ, let's regain an interest uh, in other people and let's, let's calibrate to this goodness and graciousness. Our presence in the world is better off if we can do a good job of these two things, okay? So let's come to the story. If you have a Bible, you can turn open to John chapter 8, but if you don't, I have it up here on the screen. So in John chapter 8, there's a line that jumps out to me in this. It's down in verse 7 that is so powerful. Jesus says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Oh, uh, that, I'm sorry, that's in verse 11. But up in verse 7, there's another powerful statement that Jesus makes to the crowd that is gathered around. And that is, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. So he says to them, basically, 
if any of you are without sin, go ahead, throw the stone. And they all exit. Then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. So let's tease this out a little bit. And the way I want to do that is um, I want us to think about the grace that was given to this woman who was clearly in the wrong, but we need to ask the question, why was she in the situation that she was in? Now, it's sad to think that a religion that is based on grace, which is Christianity, is primarily known for judging other people. There are individuals that have a long list of laws that they use as their self-identification, self-righteousness, uh, condemnation or finger pointing, uh, pointing is often found, but there is probably a reason why people default to that. In fact, I think there's two reasons. One, loving is hard. Have you found that? It's a whole lot easier to judge other people than it is to love other people. And yet Jesus tells us we're to love, and he says we're even to love our enemies, whatever that looks like. The second thing I think that's important is judging is also a form of self-justification. And I think all of us, we do our very best to try to safeguard ourselves from criticism from other people. And so if we're able to say, but I'm not as bad as that person, and if I can look at myself in judge, this judging attitude I have toward other people, then eyes are taken off of me. In other words, let me put it this way. Maybe that the reason people judge other people is because they somehow think that if they can judge other people, then they themselves can't be judged. Let me give you in on this little secret. You know that iPhone? Everybody else is carrying it too. And they're thinking a lot of thoughts toward you as we think toward other people. But what I find in this story is some people get caught in the crosshairs of that. And in this story, there's kind of three focal points. Number one is the men. The men that bring this woman to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, their hatred or judgment toward Jesus is so great that they're going to set up a woman that they can use to judge Jesus. So their hatred toward Jesus was primarily because he was not presenting the kind of kingdom that they wanted. They wanted a kingdom to stay on top. They wanted to keep their power. They wanted to keep their position. Jesus came offering a kingdom to all people, a kingdom of grace, and it's reflected in this story. So you have scribes, you have teachers of the law, and you have a group of people known as the Pharisees. Not all of them are bad, but many of them are judging Jesus. They're judging his teachings. They're judging his actions of compassion when he's healing other people, sometimes on the Sabbath. Uh, they will bring great criticism upon him. So you have this group that is trying to safeguard everything that they want to hold dear, and they're going to use other people. So the second spotlight is on the woman. The woman is dragged out in front of Jesus and accused of committing adultery. Now, can you imagine the scenario in the ancient world of the first century where the Pharisees hold tightly to the Old Testament law, there are certain commandments that they are holding rigidly to, and they're not willing to change. And one of them is 
condemning other people that do not live up to the keeping of these certain commandments. And adultery was one of them. So they take this woman, they drag her out into the middle of the street, and I think there's terror that's in her eyes as she's dragged down to the main street. And there are people that think that, hey, we're obeying the law. We're doing what's right. In fact, some of them probably look forward to this, and they probably were saying, hey, it's been quite a while since we had a public stoning. Great. Hey, let's get back to the Old Testament law. And maybe the profanities start. And her life begins to flash before her eyes. Maybe the nearness of death is so real that she doesn't even feel the spit that is uh, spat upon her. She collapses in front of the crowd. She looks down at her bare chest, and she sees her heart beating rapidly. And she's sitting in the dirt all alone, all alone. She's all by herself. But the focus, while it's on the woman, betrays some questions. As we look at the woman, we forget to ask these questions. How did they know she was committing adultery? How did they know where to find her? Where was the person she was committing adultery with? Why isn't he brought before Jesus too? Was she forced to have sex with this man? Was she actually being raped as a way of accusation? Conveniently, the man escapes the accusation and the resulting consequences. Not the woman, because she's the target. And she is set up by these religious leaders. And when the woman is brought before Jesus, the Pharisees pull out their Bible. And they insist that she be given the fullest punishment that's found in the law. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, anyone that is caught in the act of adultery should be stoned to death. Oh, my goodness. But that's not, not just the woman, that's the man as well. So there's some misogyny that's going on in this story. And they are ready to carry out this stoning. What a horrific way to die. It's not quite crucifixion, but man, it's close. Because usually what was done when there was a stoning, you would think, why don't people just run away as people are throwing rocks at them, right? A three-foot hole was usually dug in the ground. They take this person, place it in the hole, put the dirt back in. That person is stuck in that spot. And they begin using pebbles initially at the individual. And they invite their kids to do it. Here's a handful of pebbles. Start throwing them. And soon those stones start to get bigger and bigger until they become boulders. And what we find is that this individual will then suffer immensely under this weight of rocks. Now, we've seen a tragic thing this past week in Surfside, Florida, when that uh, uh, apartment building collapsed. There were people that were crushed under this, and that was an accident. This is intentional, all right? And so here is a person then that will be under a load of rocks. And I was thinking of a couple of other questions that we never ask about this woman. What is the situation of this woman that we are judging? Why would she agree to commit adultery when she possibly knew the consequences of getting caught were so dangerous? What was it in her life that 
propelled her to willingly have this act of adultery with a man, or was she forced to? We're not told in the text because of spotlight number three. So you see the men, you see the women, I mean the woman, and you, then you see Jesus. Hallelujah. You see Jesus come along, and Jesus steps in to rescue this woman, and the way that he does it is quite unusual. We're told in the text that he bends down, and he begins to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. We have no idea what he wrote in the dirt. Did you know we have not one single word written down that Jesus wrote with his own hands? All we have are the stories of others that wrote down his teachings. So what we have here is dramatic theater. And this dramatic theater focuses on goodness and graciousness in the heart of Jesus himself. He looks to those who are accusing her, and he says, well, are you without sin? Anyone who's without sin, you be the first one to throw a stone. And then the text says they all started to disperse. And what's fascinating, if you look closely at the text, it says that the older ones start to leave first, and then the younger ones. Because have you noticed sometimes, as you get older, you have a better perspective on life. Young people are full of zealousness sometimes, but sometimes it's tunnel vision. They don't see the big picture. So these older people then began to disperse. And then finally, the younger ones do as well. And now it's just Jesus that's left alone with this woman. And it's almost as if he reaches down with his hand and he lifts up her chin and he says, where are those that condemn you? There's no one around. And then he says this, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go now and leave your life of sin, which is an interesting phrase that most people fix on in this story. Because people that like to judge like to focus on that phrase. Ah, but he said, go now and leave your life of sin. That's what he said to everybody there. It wasn't just her. When he says, you who are without sin, throw the first stone, it was the same thing as saying, now go and leave your life of sin of judging other people, condemning other people, harming other people. And so as we come to this story, the lenses, the men, the woman, and Jesus, I think it's a great start because that's what God does with us. When we come before God, we hear these wonderful words, neither do I condemn you. It's the words of Jesus that come true to our own heart. Jesus is talking to us today saying, it doesn't matter where you've been. I don't condemn you. I love you. Now, if there's changes that need to be made in your life, make those changes. Go, leave that way of life. Leave the way of foolishness. Leave the way of whatever. You see, religion has a way of suffocating us, thinking the whole time that we're good with God, but maybe we're far from his heart. Religion has a way of taking the Bible and turning it into a weapon. Nothing quite inflames religion than targeting other people. 
And the faulty thinking is maybe if I judge other people, then God won't judge me because I'm better than they are. We must allow grace to awaken us. And Jesus keeps telling us to drop our stones. I'm not carrying a physical stone, but I'm carrying a lot of symbolic ones maybe that I use to hurt other people or maybe harm a situation. I need to drop the stones. The stones belong on the ground, not in my hand. So Jesus is still saying to us who might be a little bit judgmental, self-righteous, and using religion as a means to do that, he who is free of sin, you throw the first stone. Religion seems as though it enjoys throwing stones at other people. And for 2,000 years, men and women have kept trying to get Jesus to throw a stone at other people that are on the opposite side of where they are. But Jesus lived this simple philosophy. If love guides our hearts, then rules become redundant. You have heard it said, but I say to you, if love rules our heart, then rules and laws become redundant. Because if I'm loving, I will do what is right by you. I really will. Maybe judging others comes so easily because maybe we have spent so many years condemning ourselves. Have you ever thought of it that way? Maybe we have spent so many years throwing stones at ourselves that we need a target to throw at. Well, if that is the case, maybe the way of stoning begins in a heart that is already turned to stone. And so what we ask God to do is to give us a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft toward other people. Sometimes the most critical people look like self-confident people, but sometimes those individuals might be the most self-loathing individual that can't stand themselves, so what they do is they look for targets to throw stones at others. What if we're known more for empowering other people rather than emasculating them? What if goodness and graciousness were the main tools to demonstrate God's kingdom? And what if grace is the only thing that changes anything? And what if grace that awakens us, uh, that grace that tells us that we're loved and accepted by God, what if that levels the playing field as we look to other people? I want to say that's brave. It's much braver to drop the stones than it is to throw them. Grace is brave. Be brave. Be brave. As we close here this morning, I have one closing thought from Anne Lamott. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Let me say that again. You can safely assume you created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So maybe we just take one small step of reconsidering individuals that we normally would reject or we normally would judge, and we would stand and ask God to give us a heart of flesh, not stone. Let's do that. Would you stand with me as I close in prayer, please? I want you to know today you're loved, you're accepted, 
And I want you to know that we need to affirm that in each other's lives. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have this time together today to look at this ancient story. Thank you for the spotlight that it gives to us on this age-old tactic of judging other people. We pray, Lord, that as we begin this series, that we first start removing judgment toward other people so we can grow in grace, that we can grow in goodness, that we can grow in being gracious to other people. Help us to start this week, even if it's in a small way. Help us to look to other people. Help us to withhold judgment. And help us to show our love because you've told us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Give us the ability to do that this week, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, everyone. Hope to see you again next week.